0: Well, before we start, um, I want to tell you that I have a baby sister who um, has just finished studying environmental science and business, environmental science or sustainability science, in fact, and business. Uh, and uh, we, we, um, we call her our corporate hippie because she works for uh, Ernst & Young. Uh, it's a big auditing firm and they audit... The miners on their environmental, um, sort of pledges and stuff like that. So, um, she is, um, yeah, she's, she's right on the, uh, the, the greeny trend. Um, but we love trolling her because she's so passionate about the environment, our family. She's easy prey. Uh, she's wisening up, but every now and then she still gets triggered. Uh, very secretly, I do have a lot of respect for her, but, uh, she'll never know that. So that's the part we'll, we won't record uh, this morning. <laughs> One of the things, though, that she said to me in the, in these conversations after we've triggered her um, is that uh, there's this theory of uh, climate change uh, that is of p- particular concern uh, regarding the the smallest of changes that are happening now that will have massive impact globally. So you've probably heard of this, but that the idea that one or two degrees uh, difference or uh, increase in temperature across the globe will see entire cities submerged in water. One or two degrees. Now, um, there's probably uh, a few people that uh, are sceptical about all of this sort of stuff, but, and my intention isn't to have a debate about this. We can have a conversation afterwards, I guess. Um, but the point is that small changes now can have massive effects later on. Uh, You've probably heard of the butterfly effect. Uh, The idea, uh, I think it was an economist, that uh, a tiny butterfly flapping its wings above the ocean in Brazil can cause a tiny wave to ripple across the entire world's oceans and eventually become a tsunami in Japan as the energy builds and expands across the water. That's the... Butterfly effect. Well, we get something like that this morning uh, when we come to another incident in the ministry of Elisha. Uh, It's the case of a very mundane event, a very mundane context and situation where a worker loses his axe in a river. And uh, we'll try and unpack that a little bit. So, if we can get someone to read for us from 2 Kings chapter 6. And we'll read from verse 1, 2 Kings 6, verse 1. Before I uh, came down for the weekend, I had a quick look on the South Barwon sermons page. And I noticed that you guys actually did a series on Elisha two years ago. And uh, I had a quick look uh, on what passages were, were dealt with. And conveniently, Clinton missed this passage. He didn't talk about it. I won't speculate why. We can ask him... His elders will ask him uh, this week. But I think uh, it is one of the weirdest and trickiest parts uh, of the Elisha story, and perhaps the Old Testament, to try and explain uh, why this is important. Why the idea of a solid metal axe head um, floating to the top of the water is an important story to tell. So we know that uh, from the previous uh, story that God, you know, at the start of Elisha's ministry, does something absolutely incredible, uh, two miracles, one very good, one not so great, um, but he does it, God does it to communicate something in that and we know through scripture that is how he works. He, uh, these miracles aren't sideshows, they communicate a message, they, 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 they are a part of God's revelation of himself to people. So what is God saying then in the story of the axe head being recovered? Well, the first point is uh, we see a situation of blessing nearly upended. We, uh, we notice first of all, uh, and it's clear from these opening verses in chapter 6, uh, that we find a situation that God is richly blessing. There's, there's, there's promise, there's, there's excitement in these verses uh, before Elisha in, uh, in his Uh, predecessor Elijah's ministry, there came a point where Elijah is sitting under the juniper tree and he's saying to God, I'm ready to die. The situation is so bad. Israel is so lost. Um, The the king and the queen are coming for my head. Um, I'm ready to die. Uh, He he felt it was the end of the road. There was no hope for Israel. And now we find uh, at this point... uh, a sign of grace because we see uh, something that can be considered some pretty encouraging church growth. Uh, Verse 1 says, The sons of the prophets come to Elisha saying, See the place where we dwell under your charge. It is too small for us. Now again, this is the mysterious order that uh, sort of seemed to have existed in Jericho and, uh, and Bethel. Uh, and the sons of the prophets pop up again and they say to Elisha that we don't have enough place with, there's no space for all of these people that sort of joining the Bible college or, 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 whatever, this commune. We need to expand. Uh, you know, set the, the building fund account up. We need to, uh, raise some more fund, uh, some more funds for it. So there's a, a, there's a, I think a promising change starting to happen. A pocket of blessing even in the, the bleakness of Israel's uh, situation. And so in chapter 6, we, we are four chapters along. Uh, we're really right into the guts of Elisha's ministry. Uh, and so far, God has used Elisha powerfully. Uh, before this, Naaman, the, the Gentile uh, Syrian commander, is healed powerfully of his leprosy. Uh, Another time, Elisha raises a young boy back to life. He raised the dead in his ministry. These are career-defining events for a prophet, you can imagine. And then, we come to this strange little event in Elisha's ministry. God is richly blessing the work of the... of the ministry. Hundreds of people are being saved or are being drawn to witness uh, God's power, putting their faith and their hope in the Word of God. And then comes this little wobble. A, an axe falls into a river. And everything stops. And a worker cries out, Master! this axe was borrowed. Why is that a big deal? Well, uh, commentators point out that a tool like this axe would have been uh, far more precious a position than we would think an axe is today. Uh, Losing an axe back then didn't mean that you simply ducked down to Bunnings to pick up another mass-produced Chinese-made axe. a tool like this, an iron tool, would have been expensive. So precious that this worker, who remember was one of the sons of the prophets, had to borrow it. We can imagine, we can think that this man was poor. Perhaps the whole order was fairly uh, fairly poor. And so the fact that they are living in this commune is probably an indication of that as well, that they relied on one another uh, to survive. But they were doing this for the express purpose of studying or or, or working under the authority of the prophets. And so it makes perfect sense that they would have needed to have borrowed an expensive tool because there was no way that they could afford it themselves. And seeing that it was borrowed and seeing that they were poor, the question is how would they replace this axe? Well, how did thieves repay something that they um, had taken without permission or had lost? Well, they uh, had to work for the person uh, until the debt was paid off. You sold yourself into slavery until that debt was paid off. And so this ministry student, perhaps, would have sold himself to to work off this this debt. Now, of course, you may... uh, also disagree with this line of arguing, but let me explain why else this is such a big deal. Within the big scheme of things, it meant that the gospel work that was happening, the the advancement and the ministry of God's word, was that had started through Elijah, was coming through in Elisha's time, was spreading to the sons of the prophets. It was being slowed down. Uh, you know we, we can 't cut any more wood, we can't cut down more trees to build our ministry school because of this thing that has happened. Indeed, if this axe was so precious, the people so poor, you can imagine that this axe being used by several workers uh, was being used by several workers at the same time. Now, on top of this, uh, we also remember the rebellious people of israel 's time that probably were watching on. As uh, this commune was growing, as these people were, um, you know, excited about what was happening, and you wonder what um, I guess the outsiders would have said about all of this. What is is God really with these guys if something like this um, stops the work? How powerful is their God when the proclamation of His word is so easily hindered? Whatever the reason, we see in this. Many time of revival, something of uh, something impending the, the, impeding the progress of the mission. and so this brings me to wonder uh, about uh, how God views the small things, how God views the small things in our life? Um, isn 't it sometimes those small things that overlook things that, the things like a broken axe head? Uh, that Satan or the world or the flesh can use to uh, derail or attempt to derail what God is doing in our lives. Remember the powerful teaching of uh, the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 6 about the armor of God. Remember those vivid images, the breastplate of righteousness, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, these are all weapons and armor against an onslaught of Satan seeking to oppose God's kingdom. But we all know that, right? But look at the context. Let's have a quick turn to Ephesians six. Let's have a, just a very quick look at the context in which Paul gives this, you know, very memorable. Um, teaching. End of chapter 5, just before we're heading into chapter 6, we see Paul encouraging wives and husbands um, and how they are to treat treat one another. Uh, Chapter 6 verse 1, children obey your parents. So Paul talking about children and parents and their relationship. And then in verse 5, servants and their masters, how they are to relate to one another. And then this Whole armor of God passage comes in. Uh, why does it happen here? Well, I think it's because it's not out there, out there that Satan, uh, the world, or the flesh seeks to derail God's work. It is in here. It's in the family. Uh, it's in those intimate sort of relationships. That se- Satan seeks to destroy the kingdom of God, and he does it in the little things, the overlooked relationships we have. Uh, he does it in the things that are closest to us. Perhaps it's not so much the, decision, the, the decisions of our government, uh, or the friends that are hostile, or the uh, uh, you know the the media, the left wing media. That's a threat to our church, uh, to the church of South Barwon, it is you and I. We are the greatest dangers. We are the greatest threat. And so the most trivial and the most understated are often the most surprising vehicles to impede the work of God. And that's why Paul tells us uh, to keep guard. To never assume. To never assume Uh, that uh, our family is saved just because they've come to church with us forever and ever. Uh, Never assume our kids are saved because they go to Sunday school. Never assume uh, the older couple in church have a saving knowledge of Christ. Um, We should never assume that our pastor can't fall. That he's not capable of sinning greatly. So we're never to put our hope in anything less than Jesus Christ himself. Because everything is capable of failing us. That's why Paul tells us in verse 18 of that Ephesians 6 passage, keep alert with all perseverance. Keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for the saints, praying for the church. A little thing, like a broken axe, brings everything to a halt. Then we move on to the next point, where God saves and even this little thing. We see Elijah um, acting on behalf of God, saying, where, does, where did it fall? Where is it lying? And having been shown this spot, he cuts off a stick, he throws it in that area in the water, and amazingly, this piece of solid iron becomes as light as wood and floats next to the stick. Uh, now, I've, I've read all sorts of reasoning, uh, all sorts of possible uh, explanations of how this happens. Some people have said that the stick is some sort of special stick, that it dilutes the water, it makes the, the chemical nature of the water different, and that's how this thing can float. Um, but I think we're clutching at straws when we do that. The exasperation of the worker himself Alas, my master, it was borrowed, indicates just how despairing it was. This thing was lost. It was gone. It was a foregone conclusion that a chunk of metal was at the bottom of the river. So the stick that was thrown into the water is probably as practically useful as the new bowl with the salt was in healing the water. Um, there might be, again, some allusions back to Moses, back to that the, that piece of wood that's thrown into Mara, into the water there that makes it sweet again. Um, but regardless, this is a remarkable miracle. I mean, that's why it's recorded down. Uh, and it was marveled at in the same way and is probably as hard to believe back then as it is now for us. That's why it was written down. But what was God saying? In that miracle. Well, I think we see that our God is a God who cares even about the little things. We need to understand that um, our little church, our little small group, that can be so influenced, can be so attacked, impeded from the most unlikeliest of sources, our little church is able to be rescued by God. And yet God sees and He is concerned about the smallest thing. God is concerned about a wayward child. God is concerned about a hardened grandparent with dementia. I, I read a, an article recently uh, or an interview with John Piper where he talked about um, the struggle of fearing what would happen to some of his older friends who are such lifelong, committed Christians wrestling with Alzheimer's and dementia, totally changed in personality because of this thing. Are they saved? Now, do they, does this reflect where they're at with God? And he said we have to be faithful and we have to believe that God is gracious enough to even deal with those things. That God can deal with cognitive functions that are starting to fail. So I think the story of the axe head is God wanting us to know that he will preserve his people. And we see this in Jesus Christ. Elisha is the forerunner of Christ. An example of, in some way, uh, where, where God has come to us, and we touched on it this morning, where Judgment was stopped uh, from reaching the naughty boys by Jesus Christ. But Jesus doesn't only save us from judgment. He saves us from the little things that are the foretaste of this judgment. Jesus saves us now from the poor decisions we make now. He rescues us from the consequences of our brokenness now. He doesn't simply save us in the big things. His love is so complete that He saves us in the areas of our lives that other people may think is trivial. That other people may think this is not really that big a deal to be worried about. Who else can save me? Who else can save me from the triviality of mental illness? From depression when everyone's like, your life is good. You know, how can this knock you back so much? Why be anxious? You have resources at your fingertips that no generation have, have had before you. This very morning, uh, as I'm here, we have a lady who's just been admitted to hospital for the eighth time with um, anorexia, mental health ward, And everyone in our church, we're at our wits and we, we can't help her. Just eat. For us, it seems so trivial. But I believe that God can save in something that's probably not very trivial to Lisa. And so this situation of blessing a Bible college that is too small for all its students is nearly upended and overturned by a small thing Like a broken axe that may have cost a ministry student, you know, several years of paying off. And it seems so incidental, and yet God uses Elisha, a man whose name means my God saves, to turn this incidental event into a turning point in the kingdom of God. Um, Arthur Pink uh, wrote a little. Commentary on Elisha's life. And uh, he gives a few application points that I just want to share with us uh, this morning, this afternoon. Um, if we can just go to the next slide, please. Uh, the first thing he says so it is from, uh, yeah, gleanings from Elisha. The first thing he says is to acquaint your master from this passage, acquaint your master with your grief or your worry. Uh, speak frankly, he says, and freely to God and, to, and say to Him, alas, my Master, my situation is so unsafe. It is so terrifying. Then, let His question, where did it fall, examine you. Allow the Lord to search your heart. To review your own life. Where did it fall? Where did it go wrong? Identify the and where that blessing that you had in your life has ceased, or whether spiritual loss was felt. Understand the role that you played in causing that loss and confess it. Honestly evaluate where did it fall? And then thirdly, put your faith in the power behind the cross. Now A.W. Pink points out that the stick that Elisha cut off and threw into the river has no special power to it. Uh, The Hebrew word is a very generic one for stick. But he goes forward into the New Testament and he thinks of 1 Peter and Galatians 3 where Paul in Galatians 3 quotes Deuteronomy saying, Cursed is anyone who is hung from the tree. Was there any power in the wooden cross that Jesus was crucified on. Was there any power in the stick that He was hanging on? Pink says, of course not. Not at all. It's what God would do through that cross, that tree that was so glorious. So once we have identified our problem, once we have confessed it to our God, then we are to go to, our, to the cross and we have to take hope in the power of the cross to redeem And then fourthly, finally, we have to take it or reach out and grab it. Uh, The man had to obey Elisha's instruction. Elisha tells him, take it. And uh, again, what was going through his head in that time, this is something that is really remarkably miraculous. Um, Could it have been intimidating? Yet, he had to make that decision in order to, in essence, receive his salvation. He had to reach out and take it for himself. His life, in that moment, had been ransomed by this miracle. So no longer was there the possibility for him of slavery, but he had a future as a free man. And so, coming back to our sort of discipleship stuff... um, this is some of the things that we should remember, and, and again, it's just not rocket science. Um, uh, but we have to remember the little things that we do in our ministry to those that God has entrusted to us. It's the little things that God uses. Amazingly, um, I'm reminded of uh, Jonathan Vandenberg, which some of you guys will uh, will know. Um, he wrote a master's. Paper a few years ago, he was our uh, denominational youth worker. He wrote a master's paper on discipleship to young people, Um, and he interviewed a whole bunch of uh, people, Christians, and their stories of how they sort of were discipled into into faith. And the thing that he concluded with was the amazing um, consistency of people having those conversations in the car on the way to youth. That was more influential than what was said at the youth group. It was a a leader taking a bit of time to just sit with someone when they were going through a rough patch. And uh, it was unplanned and it was unprepared, but those moments, those little moments, were some of the biggest things in the life of uh, these young people that became disciples of Christ. Um, I was one of those that he interviewed, and my story is very, very similar. God cares about the little things. And I think uh, that is something that we should remember when we think about and when South Barwon really changes that direction into focusing on discipleship. Do the little things. So we're going to just watch a quick uh, little snippet again from the way. This time it's uh, between Philip Sheepers um, and a guy called Adam Ramsey. He's a a really great guy up on the Gold Coast. Uh, And they talk about um, sharing the gospel. And and this is sort of, you know, discipleship before someone becomes a believer. You can argue that that's also part of the discipleship process. But he talks about some very practical things, which are very little things, trivial things perhaps, that make a massive difference. Thanks. Yeah, I think there's just a a few good reminders. Open homes, uh, open lives, open fridges. um, They can be really, really significant in that discipleship journey. So uh, I think that's it. We're going to hand it over to Clinton to lead the next bit.